Trump's great people, who's in the running for America's top jobs, and the NATO Secretary-General says he's had reassurances from the president-elect about the alliance. Is Russia putting missiles on trains and Pacific islands? What's the latest from Mosul? And the military benefits from the autumn statement. Great people. That's what the president-elect of the United States has been saying about those he's considering for jobs in his cabinet. He's already made one nomination. He wants Nikki Haley, the current governor of South Carolina, to be the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. But who are the other possibilities? Well, BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee is with me. Hello, Christopher. Um, he's already made some decisions, hasn't he? Michael T. Flynn, the ex-general we were talking about only a few weeks ago. Uh, yeah, he's... Um He's quite a tough guy, Flynn. He gives a tough impression as well. Uh, and he's a part of a group. And I find this fascinating that, that Trump's people have gone out to... I've got a count of 47 different recently retired military mm. that he's saying, interview that guy, see how that guy would fit in the organisation. Now, the reason for that is not that Trump has gone macho and said, I want badges around me and medals. It's because the modern major... Uh, commanders, ex-commanders in the United States, are now geared into this thing. They don't go off and become sort of open things in Oklahoma afterwards. Mm. They're far more political. And also, you look at the ones he's got, they're all mostly special forces as well, or ex-special forces at some time. So Michael Tieflin will be the National Security Advisor. Who's in the frame for Secretary of State? Well, yeah, is it... Is we have it, a former New York mayor, don't we? Well, it's Giuliani, Rudolph Giuliani, who is, it must be, must be in the frame for that. There's James Mattis, and also, uh, I like the idea of Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney was the guy that uh, started, came to the first came to came to notice. When he sorted out the debacle, which was the Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City, from that great Secretaries of State cumber. But look at the head of the CIA, Mike mm. Pompeo. Uh, he was the uh, Home Intelligence Committee, uh, uh, which the House Intelligence Committee, very, very, very important. But Nikki Haley, who is uh, fascinating because she has a lot of the ideas that Samantha Power, who was uh, President Obama's, uh, permanent representative of the United Nations uh, had. Will they continue those arguments? Will they start manipulating the Permanent uh, mm. Security Council in order to get American policies or to back Russian policies? And that's the big big thing to watch. Now, also on the list for a possible appointment as Secretary of State is another uh, former military man, General David Petraeus. He was asked about it yesterday on Radio 4. I've been in a position before where a president has turned to me in the Oval Office uh, in a difficult moment, turned without any pleasantries and said, I'm asking you as your president and commander-in-chief to take command of the International Security Assistance Force in Afghanistan. The only response can be yes, Mr. President. OK, let's just go through uh, the possible defence secretaries. And again, yes, military names or former military names in the frame, Christopher. Tom Cotton was an Army infantry officer. Yeah, um, a, a, a bit of a puzzle... Um, simply because he's single-minded. Um, the the, the Defence Secretary has got to understand the industrial defence debate. 
far more. He's got to understand the pot barrelling of of the House of Representatives, in particular, where everybody gets a defence contract in in their constituency. Mm. But I still think that what's going to be particularly interesting is the way that he's lining up all these khaki uniforms, and that's where he's turning to, because as far as he's concerned, these are action men. These people have done done the job. You yep. can spell the sweat, as he puts it. Well, also on that list is Duncan Hunter, who was a Marine Reserve officer, and, of course, uh, James Mattis. Now, um, he's one man, he's known as Mad Dog, and one man who spent time with General Mattis is the Conservative MP and Army Reservist Tom Tugendhat. So I got to know him a little bit when uh, I worked for people who worked for him. Um, and uh, this was in uh, Afghanistan when he took over CENTCOM. And then I got to know him rather better um, when I was the military assistant to the chief of the defence staff and um, used to go to Washington uh, often to prepare uh, for General Richard's visits or for other relationship building exercises and um, or different operation preparations. And... Um, and I got to know him a little bit there, but mostly I knew him through his staff. Mm. I mean, you've tweeted this week that he's anything but a mad dog. What is he like? He's an extremely clever man. He's one of the best read men I, I, I've ever come across. I mean, his, his appetite for books is voracious, and he... Um, I don't know if he still does it. He might He might still do it indeed. He's the sort of person who might still do it in his spare time. But he used to send out reading lists to uh, those under his command, Um whether um, you know working behind a desk or working in the field, and the reading lists were always eclectic and interesting, and and the, the lists themselves were worth reading, let alone the uh, content of the books that he suggested, because they pointed to the kind of uh, a guy he is, which is uh, interested, engaged, uh, thoughtful, uh, and extremely clever. So, do you think he would make a good defence secretary? I suspect he would, but I mean. Uh, as, as we know, defence secretaries are um, hugely uh, about the politics inside uh, Washington, and that's not my area of expertise. Um, but uh, all I can say is I think he'd make an, a, a fantastic leader uh, of the military. Um, how he would be at playing uh, politics so that he got enough money um, and resources to buy the appropriate kit, and I don't know. But, um, but I suspect that as the clever man that he is, he would find ways through that. You mentioned how you met him when you were in Afghanistan serving and yourself a former military man. Uh, What kind of contribution can military people make to politics when they make that transition? Well, I I hope we can make a good contribution. Uh, And uh, I I hope that what um, um, military people going into politics can bring is is the ethos that uh, those, those of us from the armed forces know so well. It's duty, it's integrity, it's service, um, and I think uh, I think if we if we maintain that, um, you know, what, what the what the army calls the core values um, uh, in the transition, then I think uh, I think we can make a very important difference. And speaking from personal experience, how has your military career helped you? Oh, hugely. I mean, it, it, I, I can't even begin to say how much it's helped me. I mean, it's 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 uh, so total. I mean, it's it, very few things like the military uh, very few things are like the military so very few um, organizations do you get to meet people from a complete cross range of our country you know you get um, uh, you know from everybody from every background every walk of life um, is represented in some way in the armed forces and you and you meet and you really live with people 
it's not a nine to five as you know it's uh, you know you really do live with people and you get to know them really well particularly on operations but even if you're only on exercise you really really get to know people and i think that contributes hugely to um thinking about what's the best for our country and and, and how to take what a frankly pretty tough decision that was the mp and reservist tom tugenhart talking to me a little earlier Still to come, what's going on in Mosul and what does the Chancellor's autumn statement mean for the military? NATO has accused Russia of aggressive military posturing after reports it's deployed anti-ship missiles in its Baltic region. On Monday, Russia's Interfax news agency said Bastion missile launchers had been sent to Kaliningrad, a Russian enclave sandwiched between Poland and Lithuania. There are also reports of Russia pushing ahead with plans to relaunch nuclear trains and has moved anti-ship missiles to Pacific Islands. Well, let's talk to the former British ambassador to Russia, Sir Tony Brenton. Hello, Sir Tony. Um, first of all, just tell us a little bit about the strategic importance of Kaliningrad and what exactly has been going on there. Well, I mean, the point about Kaliningrad, of course, is it is it's an exclave. It's surrounded by NATO territory. Uh, so the Russians are a little bit nervous about its security. But it is also the case that they see it as a sort of forward base on the Baltic for the disposition of weapons and, and forces if they feel that they're under threat. And at the moment, they do feel they're under threat. We've seen a, a, a rise in NATO deployments in the, in the, in the Baltic states. Um, we've seen a vast increase in U.S. spending on, on uh, military activity in Europe. And they are worried, they, they were genuinely worried in the light of what was going on in Syria, that there was going to be a military clash, and a number of their uh, generals at the time said so. So they've been stepping up their, their readiness, and um, that's what's going on in Kaliningrad now. Christopher, how under threat do you believe Russia feels? If you, if you talk to individuals and you say, what about this? And they say, it's, not, it's, it's, it's almost something about, like, fear. It, it, it starts off, if you like, if it starts off in the 90s. Uh, you have this uh, so-called peace agreement. Russia settles, uh, the, 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 uh, Europe settles down. Uh, Americans or NATO says, we're not going to come back on your, your old uh, near abroad, former territories, etc. We're going to stay where we are. Next thing that happens, they are in Russia's former territories, Russia's former near abroad, Russia starts to get nervous. That can do, nothing happens is going to change that. Russia not moving out as freely, for example, as NATO politicians, NATO commanders, NATO military operations, it's working all the time uh, as if it's locked in its own big garden. That is the basis of fear because it actually sees capability on the other side, either the so-called NATO side, and how would we feel if it was the other way around? It sees that as capability. What it doesn't understand is what might be the intentions, and therefore you get, not retaliation, you get the sort of moving forward of, of, of let's say, motor rifle division, mm. uh, etc., at the same time as NATO is filling that sort of that area around the Baltics, mm. that is where you get the difficulty. But you're not, what you're not getting are sort of just missiles and commanders facing each other. What you're getting is part of a much bigger picture, which includes the possibility of, of, of getting some of the local Russian speakers, Russian passport holders in this area, get them agitated. Think in mm. terms of East Ukraine so, as it was three years ago. So, Tony, how much do we really know about the effect that this, these movements are having on the ground in that area? Well, I mean, very little. They're being moved there um, in, in the Russians' eyes 
as a defensive measure. I, I entirely share your, your correspondent's view that there's a gap between capability and intentions here. And what is going on is that both sides are settling up, uh, are creating extra capability, i.e. we're in an old-fashioned arms race. Both sides are misjudging the other side's intentions. The, we regard the Russians as a threat to Estonia and, and Latvia and so on, which I think is complete nonsense. Um, the Russians spend one-tenth as much as NATO does on defence. They are only... They're, they're, they are not going to get, get themselves into an eyeball-to-eyeball -eyeball confrontation with NATO. And they judge us as threatening them with our expansion of, of capability in, in the Baltics and elsewhere. And, of course, we have no aggressive intentions either. The trick, the solution, has to be to level this off, to begin to talk to the Russians, to find a way back from a situation which everybody is increasingly describing as a new Cold War. So, so, so Tony, um, what are the ambassadors doing in all of this then? Clearly not very much. <laughs> well, they're doing what their politicians tell them, which is, which is what they're paid for. Um, but the, the, the fact is that um, we are the vastly more powerful side in this argument. As I say, we spend 10 times as much on as defence as the Russians do. They see us as a threat uh, in their eyes, as, as again, as your correspondent says, we've expanded NATO, we've fought a war in Kosovo. In their eyes, we've destabilised Ukraine and so on and so forth. So I would argue that it is for us to open talks with the Russians as to how to get the temperature down. Mm. Tell us about the nuclear train, Sir Tony. <laughs> well, this is all part of the same thing. And the important fact to understand, and actually it's a very dangerous fact, is that Russia is vastly inferior to the West in conventional military terms. If we did get into a Russia-NATO conventional war, they would lose, and lose quite quickly, and they know that. So they're looking around for other ways of bolstering their security, and the obvious thing to do is to draw attention to the size of their nuclear deterrent, which is vast, mm. which is the second biggest in the world. And so they're talking about nuclear trains, they're talking about tipping their Iskander missiles in Kaliningrad with nuclear warheads. They're, they're raising the subject of nuclear deterrence a lot more. I mean, nobody was talking about nuclear two years ago. And suddenly mm. it's back on the agenda. Can I just, um, just point on the nuclear trains? Let us put imposition in the whole complex of the different arguments here. Let us put in a Russian nuclear base or nuclear, nuclear missile base. Let's put it somewhere in the eastern Baltic area, for example. You have to first establish the base you, with all its logistics, etc. Nobody takes much notice of that. Then you have the site logistics. Then you put the missiles in. Then the, miss the warheads don't go with the missiles. The warheads come later on. And then who brings the warheads? Well, the nuclear trains. It's a straightforward thing. But taken individually as a headline over 12 months, as I've been watching, not just the United Kingdom newspapers, etc., my goodness, you know, Russians put in Iskander mm. uh, missiles. Now they've got nuclear trains, and you can imagine these trains going on, going through the night as, a, as, as mystery, mystery weapons. Put it in that, and then step back, and then step back to people like Satoni and, and his ex-colleagues and say to them, OK, try and sort that out with your people telling you what to say, but just try and sort it out in the margins of all the meetings that we do go to. And then you say to yourself, why can't we get the old NATO meeting with the Russians back online, etc.? We've, in a year of bad dreams, quite frankly, and if you think about it, uh, we start again in January the 21st. Yeah, so Tony, um, in all Sorry, of it... I, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, just on that, um, he's absolutely right. The point is that we are now at a moment with the arrival of Donald Trump whatever may happen to all the nice things he said about Putin, where we can have, they're not going to call it a reset because the last reset, of course, was a complete failure. But there is an opportunity for us in the West, 
following America to reconsider our approach to Russia. And I'm sure that the Russians dealing with the new U.S. administration will themselves be open to such a reconsideration. At that point, there's a chance to get the temperature down. All right, Sir Tony Brenton, good to speak to you. Thank you for your time today. The NATO Secretary-General has called on member states to spend more on defence. Jens Stoltenberg has held talks with Theresa May in Downing Street and urged other NATO countries to pay more into the alliance. The US President-elect labelled NATO obsolete during his campaign, but Mr Stoltenberg says he's had reassurance. That was a clear message from, from him, that the United States remains committed to NATO and will continue to provide the necessary security guarantees for Europe. While the NATO Secretary-General believes President-elect Trump is coming round to the principles of the military alliance. We defend each other. Uh, It's one for all and all for one. And that is a way to keep all of us safe. And we need that in an unpredictable and more dangerous world. Well, during the meeting at number 10, Theresa May said the UK will remain a cornerstone of NATO while tackling new threats, including cyber warfare. Uh, Christopher, what of this meeting then between uh, the NATO Secretary-General and Theresa May? Um, I think it's going to be more of everything else we've seen, quite frankly. Um, there's not much you can do. It, but I mean, by the way, the cyber warfare, uh, just news, news of that, there's a new college opening up in the old Bletchley Park. Indeed. Uh, as, where as else? Site. Where else would you have it? To teach people how to do cyber warfare, but it's a commercial operation, nothing. Let me go back to this. This thing about 2%, um, we have uh, Mr. Trump saying that NATO's got to do 2%, or every country's got to do percent. We've got the, the, the Secretary General doing it at the moment. If you go back to 1983, you can go back that far. Joe Lance, who was Secretary General of NATO then, in his valedictory speech as Secretary General, um, he said everybody's got to pay more money, round about 2%. The person that succeeded him was, was Lord Carrington. In his opening speech, he said everybody's got to pay about 2%. Mm. And in, in Washington, President Reagan, we've got to go back that far, said it'd be a very good idea. What do you think Donald Trump's um, sort of attitude will be towards NATO when he actually takes up office? Uh, NATO is, is America's front line, and he's going to learn that. It's been over a month since the operation began to take back the Iraqi city of Mosul from so-called Islamic State militants. Latest reports say the city is now surrounded by Iraqi-led forces. Michael Pregent is a former U.S. intelligence officer and now an adjunct fellow at the Hudson Institute, a U.S. think tank, and joins us now from Washington. Good to speak to you today, Michael. Um, what do you think? What do you know about the current situation around Mosul? Well, thanks for having me. So the, the current situation is um, the Iraqi security forces, the counterterrorism forces in particular, um, have been uh, slowed in the city. And the reason for that is that the United States will not uh, provide air support and artillery support to these units as they get closer to these civilian population centers. So that's why it's going so slow. <clears throat> as far as Mosul being surrounded, um, it's surrounded, but not all these forces are participating. The Peshmerga are not participating in the Mosul offensive. Uh, the 15th Iraqi Army Division is participating, and it was basically built from uh, members of Sadr City in Baghdad. So it has a, about a 90% Shia uh, make makeup of this unit. The 9th Iraqi Army Division is an armored division. It's also from Baghdad, and it's also 90% Shia. And then you have, of course, the Shia militias, the Hashid al-Shabi, 
and uh, they are in Talafer. They don't control all of Talafer, but they're in Talafer, so they're supposedly sealing off that route from Mosul to Talafer and then to Raqqa. So that's the current situation right now. You say that there are, there are, you've mentioned those units there that are not participating. What is the significance of that? What could the consequences be? Well, it was an agreement. Uh, the Peshmerga said they would not enter Mosul. The Iraqi government asked the Peshmerga not to enter Mosul. They said the only forces that would enter Mosul would be Iraqi army units. And the only Iraqi army units that are entering Mosul are predominantly Shia units with more than a 90% makeup. That even includes the counterterrorism services. The counterterrorism ser- services have been doing this since the beginning of the, the ISIS invasion of, of Iraq. They're, 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 they're the best, but they're also going into battle with wounds they sustained in Ramadi, in Fallujah, in Tikrit. And there's only about 3,000 of these guys. Mm-hmm. And they're still having to uh, secure areas in, in Ramadi, Fallujah, Tikrit, and also Baghdad. So they're, they're not really the force that's built to take back urban terrain. They're built to go after targets, uh, individuals, leadership. They're not, they're not built for, for, for clearing neighborhoods and cities. They're, they're built for clearing a house to get somebody but they're not cleared for this kind of mission. Or they're not built for this kind of mission. Michael, yes, I'm sorry. Also joining me in the studio today is uh, Christopher Lee. Tell me something, um, Michael. The the United States Air Force cannot provide air support because there is obviously a civilian casualty possibility. In fact, a very likely not on a great scale. Until uh, Mosul is not cleared, but some way of getting a corridor which they may not want to come into, uh, the civilians out of Mosul, the difficulty of actually taking it without any air support is is almost insurmountable. Yeah, it's something that we were never, never able to do, and I would argue the United States never truly secured Mosul. We pacified Mosul by building relationships with tribal leaders, by maintaining a presence, by trying to build trust, this isn't an operation to build trust with a Sunni population. This isn't an operation to, to curry uh, support of the uh, tribal leaders. So you're exactly right. But here's the wild card. The Iraqi Air Force doesn't have a problem doing this. The Iraqi uh, Army doesn't have a problem using their artillery. And you can see from that CNN report today that talks about Mosul being surrounded, there's an artillery piece in the background flying a sectarian flag. It's either Badakor or Kitab Hezbollah in the background, and it's indiscriminately firing artillery towards the direction of Mosul. There is no way they have the capability to have eyes on the ground in Mosul to do pinpoint pinpoint targeting in Mosul. The Iraqi army doesn't work that way. When I was uh, in Baghdad in 2007, the senior commander in charge of the Baghdad Operations Center said, if you want to punish that neighborhood, let's just level it. Let's use U.S. artillery and level it. It'll teach them a lesson, and they'll never attack us from that neighborhood again. That's the philosophy. And thank God that's not what's happening in Mosul so far. So, so Michael, given what you've just told us, what do you think will be the next development in the battle to retake Mosul? The militias will start moving in their artillery pieces. Uh, we've seen this with Kitab Hezbollah. Um, we've seen this with Asab Ahlul Haq. When... when 
the government has such a concerted effort to say the militias are not participating in the Mosul offensive. You have to look at militia artillery. Militia artillery participated in Ramadi and leveled Ramadi. 80% of Ramadi was destroyed. The U.S. got better at it, at curtailing the, the uh, militia involvement in these operations, uh, but Fallujah was always a, a militia operation. So right now what I'm looking at is the locations of uh, Kitab Hezbollah and Hashid al-Shabi artillery pieces. And no one's paying attention, but they're getting closer and closer to ranging western Mosul. And when you start ranging western Mosul, that's where the population center is. That's where we patrolled. We had to get out of our vehicles and walk those streets because they're so narrow. So that's that's uh, that's the fight to come. And that, that population's not going to exit. But it will start exiting if if that artillery does come, that artillery from the Shia militias that I'm talking about. All right, Michael Pregent, good to speak to you. It'd be good to speak to you again on this subject. That's Michael Pregent from the Hudson Institute. Well, the Chancellor, Philip Hammond, has said £20 million of bank fines will be spent on developing the new Defence and National Rehabilitation Centre. The money will be spent on Stanford Hall, which will replace the current centre at Headley Court. Mr Hammond announced the fines will continue going to charities for the next four years. I can also, Mr Speaker, confirm distribution of a further £102 million of LIBOR bank fines to armed forces and emergency services charities, including, my honourable friends will be pleased to hear, £20 million to support the Defence and National Rehabilitation Centre at Stamford Hall in Nottinghamshire. Well, our correspondent James Hurst is in Westminster. Hello, James. He didn't say much about this. Have you got the details? Yes, yeah, so... Stamford Hall, you may remember, a couple of years ago, we first saw the architect's plans to actually do this. It started to become tangible. They've got a target of raising £300 million by the middle of 2018. Now, they say they're... uh, well on the way to that they've got over two thirds of the funding in place Uh, the building work is well underway but this 20 million of bank fines I think you know is a a sizable chunk of the money that they need to actually get it up and running by 2018 they describe this as a 21st century future proofed version of Headley Court and the uh, that that award that uh, that Philip Hammond mentioned there I mean the, the the yeah, that was a fifth of the bank fines that were handed out uh, and announced yesterday. £102 million in all. It's all new money going to 101 different projects and charities across the uh, military spectrum and the uh, and also the uh, the emergency services, as you heard there. And was there anything else on defence spending? Uh, the short answer is no. <laughs> um, if you've got the, the, the whole document, I mean, he... he barely mentioned defence. Uh, flood defence has got quite a lot of it. 150-page hmm. document. It restates the government commitment to the NATO 2% GDP spending, the year-on-year plan to 2020 for an increase in real terms of about half a percent. But of course, because that NATO 2% target is, is based on the size of the economy... Uh, I think people will look at the fact that the growth forecasts were downgraded by the Office for Budget Responsibility. So they were expecting the economy to grow by 2.2% next year. They're now saying 1.4%. That could effectively limit the amount of extra money available to defence at a time when, you know, times are very tight. All right, James Hurst, thank you. Christopher? Um, The autumn statement never does defence. Never. 
It's mm. a different thing. And one of the reasons it's a different thing, and James touched on the fact that the economy may change, is the fact the inflation uh, procedure and the calculation for defence is quite different than for the rest of the nation. And one of the reasons for that would be, for example, you say we're going to buy, we're going to buy a, a, a ship and you get it 15 years later. Think of the changes in defence spending because of for example, VAT, mm. and that's the reason. Uh, just before we finish today, let's 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 end up where we started, and this is uh, Donald Trump's potential appointments. And there is lovely suggestion for the the ambassador, the British ambassador to the US, uh, Nigel Farage. A uh, bit unorthodox, as you'd expect, I suppose. Well, it, it is and it isn't. I mean, it may be some people say that's the way to get rid of the chap, um, <laughs> but it is not true. Um, uh, for example, Jack Kennedy, uh, John Kennedy, in 1961, when he became president, he wanted a, a particular uh, ambassador to come and be and be um, uh, to be ambassador in Washington. You've got to think of the reasons. Macmillan, who was prime minister, said, "Yeah, let's have him there because we're about to get into trouble over the Cuban Missile Crisis. We want somebody that we can both trust." And there have been two since. One was Peter Jay, who was an economist at a time when Jim Callaghan was going through all sorts of hell with the economy, which in fact cost him mm. the premiership. Uh, just one ma- name. Everybody, write down a name: Scaramucci. He is the man who will eventually decide what Trump does with his team. And there we shall leave it for this week. Thanks to our guests. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Never miss an episode. You can find our podcast. So from me, Kate Jabot, speak to you this time next week. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.